Well, it's great to be with all of you this weekend as we step into the continued story that's unfolding before us here in the book of Acts. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege this last week to uh, shoot over to Washington, D.C. We were at a conference over there, uh, just kind of dealing with the realities of the health crisis that exists in the world in which we live here in America. And so it was a sort of a, a convening of all of the major players in the health foods industry and the, and the healthy living industry and the, and the sort of exercise industry and Michelle. Obama was there speaking, you know, all those kinds of uh, world of saying there's a health crisis, we need to do something about it. Now, the reason I mention that is because uh, it's been a while since I've been in an environment uh, throughout a couple of days that wasn't necessarily kind of focused in some way around the church, right? I mean, this, was, this had nothing to do with church. It was, just, it was just people wanting to produce change in our country for health. And so many of the conversations that took place after the conferences, uh, breakouts and stuff were done when you're sitting over a cup of coffee, you're suddenly talking to people that have really no bearing on the reality of Jesus or following Jesus. And, and I got to tell you, uh, I, I forget sometimes how awkward it is to have spiritual conversations with non-spiritual people, right? I mean, it's, it's so much easier to talk to people that actually ha- have some kind of a, uh, engagement in that, but people that are really non-spiritual uh, in, their, in their life, um, not that they're necessarily agnostic or atheist, they're just non-spiritual, it's just a different ballgame. I mean, you don't just jump in and launch into conversation. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Like the, the reality of carrying the gospel into the world is a super awkward experience. I mean, you're, you're going in and you feel like you're carrying sort of an old school message into a new age, information age world. You feel like everybody probably knows more than they ought to and more than you do. And so anything you say, they're going to have something to say about it. And, and so you kind of walk around going, I think I'm supposed to share this. I, I think I'm supposed to to tell people about this, but I'm super nervous, and when I do, it always goes weird. And, and so we're, we, we enter into the story of the book of Acts, right? And it, and it launches in right in the beginning, Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says to uh, his disciples, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to give you uh, the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to empower you with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to make you my witnesses in Judea, Jer- uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In other words, the central theme of the book of Acts is that we are sent out as children of God to be his witnesses to the world that needs to know the redemptive realities that is the gospel. So we're in a journey where the central theme is go and be witnesses, and the most awkward experience we have is to be witnesses. So as we follow the people in the book of Acts, as we walk into the cities they walk into, as we walk with them while they dialogue with the human beings they bump into, understand that we're not doing this so we can hear cool stories. We're not doing this so that we can walk away inspired by another awesome story like a book reading little time during a library session. We are actually disciples of these rabbis that we are learning from as they were disciples of the rabbi who we call our Lord, right? So When we step into these stories, pay close attention. Watch and learn because as we go, we learn. As we go, we learn because we must figure out how did they walk in awkward scenarios in their cultural context and yet were witnesses extraordinaire for the gospel. What did that look like? And how did that play out and why did that play out and what made it so not awkward in their season and yet so awkward in ours? We've been following Paul, right? Uh, Paul and Silas particularly. 
left Antioch after Barnabas had parted ways from Paul. They went into Galatia. They picked up Timothy in Galatia. They traveled 400 miles from Galatia uh, west uh, to the Aegean Sea to Troas. They picked up Luke, the author uh, of the book of Acts there. He traveled over the, uh, uh, the uh, um, uh, um, Aegean Sea uh, to Macedonia. God had called them into Macedonia, and they landed in Philippi. And, and I got to tell you, when they crossed over in Macedonia, I was excited. I'll tell you why. Because the context in Galatia and in Israel and that whole world was a context that isn't as familiar to me in the world we live in because they were speaking primarily to people that were Jewish and had a very deep baseline of understanding of Scripture, very devoted to God. They just didn't yet know about Jesus. But the context in which I live, I don't generally bump into people that have a deep uh, knowledge of the Scriptures and a deep devoted relationship with God. They just don't know about Jesus, right? I mean, I'm bumping into secularized environments where uh, the reality of Christ is not in any way part of it, and frankly, very little religious experience, and if at all, it was just church, and church these days means very little, right? So, uh, so when they got into Macedonia, I'm like, oh, this is an environment I feel a little more at home at, right? I mean, these are the, the Romans and, and the Greeks and people that are like uh, all sorts of ideas, and then as we traveled with them from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea, we followed Paul into Athens. Now, when Paul went to Athens, he was being whisked away from Berea because of trouble in Berea created by the Thessalonican Jews. Timothy and Silas stayed. And if you remember, when Paul gets to Athens, we are now in a city that is the pinnacle of the Macedonian cultural experience. And so I'm most at home in Athens. When we get to Athens, I'm like, now this is America, baby. You know, this is the Western culture. This is where it happens. So however Paul is about to deal with the gospel here, this is is where you and I ought to be paying the most attention because we're going to see some things here that are going to uh, inspire us and, and, and equip us to be able to walk out into the world we live in and, and carry that gospel in a not so awkward manner, right? So Paul gets into Athens, and you remember if you were here last weekend, uh, the very first thing that happens in Athens is Paul's walking around, sees all the idols, right, and, and starts getting provoked. And in his provocation toward the idols, recognizing the damage they're affecting in the lives of people, he can't wait for Silas and Timothy to show up, so he just starts preaching the gospel, right? Preaches it in the synagogue, preaches it in the marketplace, because he just can't wait. And we get a glimpse into the gospel motive that should drive us, not a motive to convert people to a religious experience, but a, a motive of compassion to rescue uh, the souls of people from what is eroding away at them. And so we catch a glimpse into that and we watch Paul do his thing. And while he's preaching in the marketplace, he bumps into the Epicureans and the Stoics, two philosophical groups. We are in Athens here where philosophy is the order of the day. It has been for a long time. The greatest philosophers of all time come from the Athens world. And so uh, this is a long tradition. And the uh, Epicureans and the Stoics have very similar viewpoints. If you remember, they both believe that we are equal to divinity. Uh, the Ep Epicureans believe everything comes from matter. And so we come from matter, the, the atom. They didn't know what the atom was, but matter. And the gods come from matter, and then all of the universe comes from matter. So we're all equal. We're just in different environments trying to play the game with each other. The Stoics believe the gods did create, did make, but they were in us and in the trees and in the soil and in everything. And so we were all part of divinity. And so essentially, they both had the same view. We and the gods are equal. We just have to play nice in the same sandbox. 
And so they were philosophizing about all sorts of deep thoughts and had many of them. And they bump into Paul and he has this new idea of the resurrected Christ that he's preaching. And we jump into the story at the point that we collide with the Epicureans and the Stoics and Paul in the marketplace because he was provoked to preaching the gospel out of compassion because he saw what the idols were doing to the people's hearts and souls and he couldn't stand by and watch any longer. And so this is what happens. Grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is on page 602 if you're using one of our Bibles. If you are using one of your Bibles, Acts chapter 17, and if you are pretending to read on a smart device while you actually text, then please turn to Acts chapter 17 too, right? Don't text and drive, text in church, it's safer. Um, Anyways, moving on. Uh, Chapter 17 of the book of Acts. We're going to jump into verse 19 because that's where we left off last time. So the Epicureans and the Stoics are now curious about Paul. And so it says, and they took him and brought him uh, to the... uh, Aragopas. So here's the deal now. Uh, this, this is what's about to happen now. As, as they discover Paul, um, they, they're curious about his new teaching, so they take him to the Aragopas, which is a space uh, called Mars Hill. It's by a place called Mars Hill. And this is the space you brought someone when they had a new idea to bring to the table. And there was a court there, as I shared last week, um, And the court was called the court of Aragopas. And what they would do is um, they would come together, listen to new ideas, and they would determine if these new ideas were valid to integrate into the city's philosophies, into the moral structures, civil structure of the city, or if the ideas were silly and not valid, or if the ideas threatened the fabric of the, um, uh, the community of Athens, in which case they would then produce punishment of some kind, whether it is to cast someone out of the city or to find them or, if it was really bad, do more things. We know that this particular uh, council or, or court had a lot of power because in centuries past, we saw them produce this kind of power whenever somebody was producing thought that was anti-Athens. Uh, if you go 400 years back, one of the best examples occurs then. 400 years earlier in BC 399, there was a man named Socrates. You've probably heard of this guy, right? Socrates is one of the fathers of philosophy, one of the great thinkers of history. And Socrates lived in Athens, and uh, he had some ideas in his thinking. One of his great students was Plato. So you've got Socrates and Plato, 399 BC. Socrates is 70 years old at this time. And Socrates looks around Athens and the, the known Greek world and he comes up with two conclusions. Because of all of the the back and forth with the empires taking over, one, he concludes that democracy is not a good idea, right? So he kind of goes, democracy and and, and politics is just politics. And so what you really need is some strong people like the people in Sparta. And the Spartans know what they're talking about. And so he was for Sparta and not so much for Athens. And the people in Athens did not like that one bit. And so they charged him with being against democracy. The other thing that uh, that um, uh, Socrates had come to conclude was this, that when you look at the gods that they served in the Greek and Roman world, and at that time in the Greek world, uh, he realized as he deduced that the gods they served were awfully small gods, right? Because uh, you constantly had to add new gods every time you came up with a new concept, because uh, gods could only handle a few things at a time. So you had a god for everything, a god for this, and a god for that, and a god for the next thing, because there was no god that could actually handle all of it. There was only gods that could handle small little bits and pieces. So he concluded, not only with the gods small because they could only handle small bits, but they were also super needy. 
right? I mean, they just needed us to, to do lots of things to keep them happy. And so he concluded these can't be gods. These can't be gods that actually are real. And he concluded they're probably gods we're making up. And so he philosophized that there was, in fact, a God, a creator, a being uh, that was a God that was powerful, but he didn't know who he was, so he called that God the unknown God. So he came forward in his philosophical thinking, and he said, there is an unknown God we have yet to discover who is actually God, and all these other gods are not. And so he started holding to a monotheistic view in his talk. He stopped saying the word gods, and he started using the word God. Well, they charged him with disrespect to the gods. So they brought him before the council and they said, look, you're disrespecting the gods and you're not for democracy anymore. So if you don't stop these ideas, we're going to charge you with death. And he didn't. He had an opportunity to escape and he didn't. So they made him drink poison and he died at the age of 70 in 399 because he drank poison because he was a thinker that had determined that the gods they served didn't play well. So there was an unknown god that they didn't know. This was the same organization, essentially, over the centuries that Paul was now walking before. See, this was not a game. This wasn't something small. You didn't go before this particular court and just throw ideas around because there was consequences to your ideas. So Paul goes before them in an opportunity to lay before them this reality of Christ and to see how this plays out. And so this is what transpires in the story as we walk into it. Listen to this. And it says this, verse 19, they took him before the um, Arapagus and said, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And that just sound familiar? And that just sound just wonderful? I'm like, oh, we're in a society where all they were obsessed with, with what was ever was new. Isn't that awesome? I mean, is the new iPhone out yet? Because it's going to be any second. I just bought a new one. Yeah, but there's a newer, newer, newer one. And, and so we are people of the new. New ideas, new stuff, new technology, new anything. That's what we're obsessed with. And, and it literally says here, Luke says, these people in Athens, they were obsessed with whatever was new. So if there was a new idea in town, then everybody would gather around to hear the new idea to see if the new idea had validity, then they could grab a hold of that idea for a while and let it play out until something brand new showed up. And so here they show up in this particular setting. And in verse 22, here's what it says happened. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Arapagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I have passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I just love the way Paul starts here. Take a good clue into this. Watch carefully now. Because Paul is dealing with a cultural context very similar to ours. Pay close attention to what he does. The first thing he does, now remember he's a Jewish person. He, he, he's held to a Jewish tradition his whole life. Now he knows Jesus and he's coming into a city where the idols that were around that he's talking about provoked his spirit so deeply that he couldn't wait to do the ministry of the gospel so he started, right? So he's ticked at the idols. He knows what they're doing and you would think Paul would stand amidst the men of Athens and go, I want you to look around at this junk you're worshiping and I want to tell you it's killing you. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that at all. You know what Paul does first? It's almost as though he says, I get it. I get you. I, I know exactly how you feel. I know what's going on through you. You know, you guys perceive me as very devoted people. Really, real religious. I mean, man, look at you. 
I mean, you guys are not just messing around. I, I, I walk your city and I see the objects of your worship. I mean, you guys are into this. Now, some commentators take this word religion and they, they say, well, Paul was being, you know, facetious about the religion part and he was making religion bad here. But I, I listen to the tone of Paul. I mean, I've, I've been traveling with Paul for a while. I know him well. And you can just hear it in his, in his voice here, in his tone, in, in the way that he's playing this. He starts out by saying, with respect, I perceive you guys as real devoted. Real, real worshipers, real people that, that, that want to know the divine, that want to connect with the divine. I mean, I walk your city and it's all I see, a bunch of things you worship. It's, it's unreal. And by the way, while I was walking around your city looking at all these objects you worship, demonstrating your devotion to the divine, I, I came across one that had a, an inscription on it, and it said, the, the unknown God, the unknown God. Let's talk about the unknown God, shall we? See, don't you love this? You can read it there. That's what Paul does next. He goes, I saw these objects and then I saw this, this uh, inscription about the unknown God. Now, if you think Paul didn't know what that was, then, then go back and see what the Pharisee of Pharisees was studying back in that day. See, Paul, remember, was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was grooming to be the next great rabbi of Jerusalem. He was under Gamaliel, who was known as one of the great thinkers of Jerusalem during his time. Paul was one of his students. And so there is no doubt that these these guys were reading not just the scriptures, not just what was out of Jerusalem, but they were getting a scope of the known world. Paul was also a Roman citizen, so that means there's connections to Rome there. So Paul is well-read, and if you are well-read during this time in history, you are a Roman citizen, you are a Pharisee of Pharisees, highly educated, I can guarantee you, you know the name Socrates. You know the name Plato. You've read these philosophers. You understand how they play. You understand the world of Macedonia and of Athens. And so when Paul walks into this and he gets to this space, what an incredible thing to say. While I was walking around, I bumped into this thing that said the unknown God. What an interesting thing. Immediately, people that would have been there, this is Athens. This is where Socrates died for the very reality of setting up this idea that there was an unknown God, which later after Plato took hold and they established this space for the unknown God in Athens. And so everybody may have even in their minds gone back to Socrates and gone, one of our great fathers of philosophy was the one that created that unknown God. It's awesome. Paul goes, yeah, I noticed the unknown, uh, the unknown God. So I want to tell you something. What I'm here to do today, if you're asking me what new idea do you bring, I don't bring a new idea. I bring something much better than that. I bring to you today the revelation, the description of who the unknown God is. I can tell you who he is. You've been waiting all this time since Socrates to find out who he is. I'm here to tell you. I mean, wouldn't you be intrigued? Oh my gosh, you, you know who the unknown God is? Well, let's hear. Let's hear if you're a fool or if you're, or if you're real. So Paul says, listen, I noticed the subscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
Now, this is beautiful because you see how Paul is playing into what they already perceived as the unknown God, uh, how, how the unknown God came about because it was out of Socrates thinking to himself, there is no way the gods are this small. So there must be something bigger than this, someone bigger than this, and we'll call him the unknown God. Paul's saying, the unknown God I'm about to reveal to you, he is the maker of all things, and he is not found in temples we construct for him. In other words, he's not needy. He doesn't need us. In fact, he needs nothing from us. And here's the deal. We didn't make him. He made us. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He's taking Socrates' idea, the philosophy of his idea, and he's bringing concrete foundational reality to it. And he's going, this God is what Socrates thought he was. I just happen to know who he is. And he made it all. And so he's not found in the temples that we look around here. These things that your devoted heart worships, that you long to give you the life you long for, these things are not the things that will bring that to you. In fact, the very thing that's a side note in your city, a space that you know about but you don't really perceive, a space you don't know what to do with. I mean, they didn't serve the unknown God. Why not? Because they didn't know what the unknown God wanted, right? So the unknown God is a side note to them. You serve what's right in front of you. The idols that sit right before you, those are the ones you serve. And, and we have produced for ourselves a set of idols that we believe will produce for us what we want. And he's saying to these guys, the things you've been so devoted to, let me tell you, they are small. Because the God who has been a side note in your city, he is the answer to what you're longing for. Now watch, take a look. Paul then says this. And, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So now Paul says, listen, I want to equalize the playing field. Now understand that this seems like sort of, okay, that's a great strategy, but think about who's saying this. It's, it's Paul. And what is, what is Paul? Paul is a Jew. And, and in the Jewish tradition, you know, the Gentiles were, were separated. They were unclean. They were ungodly. They were pagan. They, they were in, in no way related to you, right? And here Paul gets up and in a single stroke, he equalizes the playing field. This God that I'm telling you about, you might think I'm bringing him to you because he is the God of the Jews, right? And I am a Jew. But let me tell you, this God made all of us and he made us all from the same person, so I don't care if you have light skin or dark skin, blue eyes or green eyes, if you speak this language or that language, if you live in this country or that country, if you're Jew or Gentile, if you're slave or free, that's not relevant to me. If you're human, this is the God who made you. And this is the God who has orchestrated a story so that you humans would discover the reality of his grace and love and mercy. And so Paul is laying out for this group here, I'm not bringing you a Jewish God. I'm bringing you our God, our God for humanity. And he made us and he came for us. And he says this, listen, even in the spaces where he has not been perceived, know this, that this God has been laying out a story all along so that no matter what space you're in, even the designated spaces of the geography is lending itself to the ability of humanity to discover the fullness of God. His story is for us to discover him. 
And it may seem like, Paul says, you've been feeling around in the dark for him. It may, because that's how, that's how the language is here. Uh, uh, th- that he says, perhaps feeling their way around toward him. It's, it's like a, a blind man feeling his way in the dark. But look what he says next. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us today. Look what he says. For in him we live and move and have our being. You've heard that before, right? That comes from the Bible. Well, actually, Paul stole that quote. It's not from the Bible originally. Paul put it in the Bible through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That quote is actually from one of the poets from the Greek world. That and the next quote you see there, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Uh, There were poets that wrote this, and one poet in particular wrote, in him we live and breathe and have our being, for we are his offspring. And so what Paul is doing here is saying, look, look around you, all around you, all the time in your own writings, The redemptive reality of God, the reality of God's love for us and God's call to us has been ever-present, and God has been orchestrating this toward this moment where we receive the revelation of who He is. This is the moment where you pull off a DVD on the shelf and go, look at this movie. This movie was produced by someone that doesn't know Jesus, but the story is redemptive. Look at the hundreds of thousands of stories we produce all the time as human beings, and the redemptive string is in them. Look at the global environment in which we live and you you see the redemptive realities finding their way in, illustrated in nature and everything else. And this is what Paul is saying. God has always been close and now you're about to discover who He is and who He was and what He's doing. Now watch. Paul says this next. Whoops, I'm in Mark. I should go back to Acts. I lost my space. Here we go. Listen. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, as image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's back in Socrates again. Guys, if we are the offspring of God, how is it then that we are creating the gods by forming them, making them out of gold and silver, and then worshiping them? God is not made by humanity. Humanity is made by God. And so these things we have given our devotion to, these idols we have created that we believe will give us the significance we long for in our cultural context, things like the relational dynamics we have. If I have the right relationship with the right people or, or the security we gain from financial uh, um, robust bank accounts or the, or the reality we gain from a, a workplace that gives us significance because we become somebody there. So we work our tail off so somebody will know us, remember us. What we get from legacy, creating a legacy for the next generation so our name will last one or two, you know, before people completely forget us. These things we have created to try to extract meaning from. He goes, listen, these things are not the things that bring the story to our hearts that we need. Look at this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by, the raising, by raising Him from the dead. And there it is. Now remember, Paul's been preaching Jesus in the streets and marketplaces of Athens already. So now he summarizes and he says, listen, What I'm here to tell you is that the unknown God is the creator of the universe, and He is going to be the one we stand before someday. This is real. Let's not pretend. And when we do, He has sent one who has rescued us so that we stand not condemned, but so that we stand right before God. And He assured us of that because the one He sent has been risen from the dead. So the unknown God is not unknown any longer. 
and the, 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 the patience God has shown for humanity discovering this process, that patience is clearing up now because of the revelation of Jesus is on planet earth. Here it is. So come and step into the devotion to the unknown God who is no longer unknown, right? So we see something fascinating happen. Paul now brings this entire contextualization of the gospel to an environment, gently speaking into where they're at, and then engaging in the philosophies in which they play, uh, stepping in because truth lives well there, uh, and then well-versed not only in the culture, but specifically in the gospel. Paul brings the simplicity of the gospel to bear on the entire philosophical discussion he's just had. And here's what happens next. Take a look. And it says this, Now, when they heard of the resurrection, verse 32, resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Well, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a space we live in? You share the gospel, and the reason it's partly awkward is because when you share it, some do what? Some mock. They look at you with those eyes, you know? Oh, you simpleton. Oh, you're not one of those, are you? One of those people that still believe that old school stuff? I get it. That's going to always be the case when you carry realities into a thinking society. Athens is a thinking society, and I'm glad they are, and I'm super glad we're in one too. But when you carry ideas into that, uh, that come with the supernatural, oftentimes there is going to be a certain sense of, oh my gosh, you're not still one of those old school religious folks, right? There was another group of people. This is my favorite group, the one I'm most familiar with. But others said, we will hear you again about this. We will hear you again about this. What does that mean? Have you, have, you, have, you, have you run into this a lot? I've run into this a lot. Oh my gosh, Renaud, I'm so happy for you. So happy for you. Oh, that's beautiful what you believe. It is. Maybe we can have lunch another time and talk more about it if I can fit it in. I, I don't know. We'll see right? It's, it's that beautiful society that you've come to, a thinking society where everyone's ideas have a validity to them, don't they? And so you've shared yours, and I like them. I've, I've got mine, and I'm sure you like mine, and all ideas are valid. Truth is uh, not anything that's absolute. It's more relative, and so if this is what you feel is true, then this is what you feel is true. See, Paul's experience here, that's why I love Athens so much. Some mock him, and then some go, we'll see you Tuesday. We'll talk again then. I'm not going to believe right now, but I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Your ideas seem fascinating, and I'm, I'm open. I'm always open to new ideas because that's who I am. I'm a new idea person, right? <laughs> and then this is the final group right here. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. See what it says? Some mocked, some said next Tuesday, and a few believed. Now, this is fascinating to me, and this is what makes Athens so wondrous to, to me and, and, and inspires me so much about the environment I have to walk into every day as a witness, a gospel carrier of the life and light and freedom, the, resi- uh, the, the, the uh, redemptive reality that Christ has brought to the table. See, Paul here in Athens probably does the most phenomenal job of contextualizing the gospel that that you can ever see. I mean, clearly he does it in the synagogues very well, but that's because he has that background. But here he steps into a secularized society, a philosophical society, and he, he just masterfully weaves truth into truth and weaves it into their world. And you would expect a Billy Graham moment, wouldn't you? Like, rah, 
and all of Athens came to Jesus, and Paul is the master articulate. But this is what you get. It was the opposite of Billy Graham, right? Paul masterfully brings the gospel to bear. Some mock him. Some call him a nice thinker and tell him we'll talk Tuesday, and a few believed. And man, that was one of the most refreshing parts of this passage to me. Almost as though God's saying it's okay. See, so often we've measured our success in carrying the gospel by the conversions we produce. What a horrid and sick way to live. Really, I mean that sincerely. Like, that's a terrible way to live. It is, it is weighty and, and, and difficult to carry. Man, I, I want to know how many people are converted. You see, this, this is birthed out of the, the wrong motive to start with. See, the beauty of the story in Athens is that it gives us the motive by which we carry the gospel. It gives us the message we carry, and then it gives us this sense of what we measure by when we're done. The motive, what is the motive? Is the motive to go into the world and convert as many people as possible to Christianity. No, that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're invited to do. We are sent into the world to be witnesses of redemption, to carry the gospel, to declare it, to be the messengers. The one who does the moving inside of human beings is not you and me. We are not God's. We are messengers for the great creator. And so our motive should not be a motive of trying to convince somebody, no matter what it takes, so that they will know and not go and face the consequences of their unbelief. Our motive should be out of compassion for what we see the life they're living is doing to them just as it has been doing to us. When the idols you and I serve with our hearts erode our stories, that should birth in us greater compassion for those who are living in the midst of those same idols, but pouring their devotion into them. I mean, I am captivated by some of the same idols my non-believing friends are, and they're already doing damage in me. Can you imagine the damage they're doing there? Because at least I still know Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm working against that. They're devoted to those idols. Out of that compassion should be born this deep sense of gospel action. Our sharing of the gospel should be an act of worship to God out of the invitation we've been given to carry the beautiful redemptive reality to people, not as a means to convert anyone. Then as we walk out of that, we should recognize that if we're going to go out of compassion and not out of a deep obligation to convert, then it is not the intellectual argument of bringing to bear on someone with uh, an argumentative spirit to make them believe. It is, in fact, this beautiful, gentle, yet firm uh, studiousness of the cultural context in which we live. We should become students of the culture and students of the gospel. See, the problem is, the reason it's so awkward for us so often to carry the gospel is that we are neither students of the gospel nor the culture. We're students of neither. We've got a basic, simplistic view of the gospel. We come to church, but we're not students of the gospel. It's not what measures us every day. It's not what shapes us. We're as captivated as the rest of planet Earth to try to get the day done and the list finished and, and the retirement settled and a good life for our kids. And the gospel waits every day to inform us into a different way of living and thinking. And when the gospel is everywhere for us and it becomes everything to us like it was for Paul, Paul went nowhere, anywhere, at any time where the gospel wasn't bleeding out of him. He walks through a city and all he sees is gospel implications. We should be students of the gospel and students of the culture. 
And what did I say last week? Sometimes we run from this culture, right? We're so afraid of this culture. We're not students of our culture. We are hiders from our culture. How do we engage the beauty of the gospel in the wonder of our culture? Well, we get to know the culture well, and we're obsessed with the gospel. And then as we carry this message, and we saw Paul do it, into our culture, we don't just carry it in only the comfortable ways, right? I'm going to kind of share with you the basic truths I have, and then I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit reveals to you Jesus. No, Paul ended with, uh, this is Jesus, and he was resurrected, and he knew where that could go. See, the, the simplicity of the gospel must always be where we end. I'm, I'm here to tell you about Jesus is what I'm doing. And then we must trust the outcome to the one who produces the outcome. And P.S., that's not you, and that's not me, right? We must not measure whether we succeeded in sharing the gospel well by a conversion. We must measure whether we succeeded in sharing the gospel well by our willingness to share it and our relevance in the moment. Did I share it in a way that was gospel-centric and demonstrated some knowledge of that person's heart? In other words, was it out of compassion because I was in conversation with that person, or was it out of obligation? And when we step into it that way, then suddenly, born in us is a freedom to carry the gospel as a privilege and opportunity, not an obligation to carry the gospel to convert human souls to a religious experience. What a waste of time that would be. This is hard work. It's hard work because carrying the gospel into a thinking culture like ours requires us to do what? <gasps> to think. <laughs> Who knew, right? Nothing frustrates me more than the Christian society in our Western culture that reads articles from thinking people who actually think deeply about things, uh, the agnostics and atheists of our society who are actually thinking these things through, and then we throw at them the standard stuff. Oh, you just don't want to live under authority. I know lots of dear people that uh, do not fall into that category, that are struggling with the faith because they're reading legitimate stuff that questions legitimate things, and we ought to be thinkers and, and throwing our little thoughts at them like pathetic little, eh, this and eh, that, it frustrates me because we're not students of the gospel nor students of the culture, nor students of thinking. So it does. You want to live in this societal context? We've got to take some time to, to learn, to think, to, to listen, to engage. And that's not easy. I did a series, um, four weeks, early 2012. It was called Carrying the Gospel. Uh, it's on our website. It's free. In fact, it'll be on the front page. And the reason I bring it to your attention is this. I would love to spend the next four weeks unpacking what it means to be culturally relevant, what it means to take this beautiful reality of redemption and to actually engage in your culture in a relevant way. But I don't, I don't want to take four weeks and do that when I've already done it and it's free online, right? And so I went back and I watched it and I still like it. I mean, sometimes you watch this stuff from like, you know, five years ago. Oh, gosh, take it off the website. It's so horrible. Uh, but thankfully, this one was actually super good. And so not because I was super good, but because the Spirit of God clearly gave us some really good information. And so uh, it was neat. And so I, I listened to it again, and I, I would encourage you. In fact, I would challenge you, go back and listen to those four weeks carrying the gospel. Learn what it means to be an active participant in carrying the gospel, to actively engage in the people around you, to actually listen, to actually wonder with people, uh, to actually serve and be kind, and, and to actually share the gospel and actually care about what you're sharing. 
And it will be a good starting point for you and I to begin to dig into what it means to live in an Athens of our own, in a thinking, philosophical culture with thousands of ideas that are all semi-valid, and to wrestle within that world like Paul did, respectfully, carefully, in a thinking manner, to say, hey, you seem like a devoted bunch of people. You seem like you take this stuff seriously. So let's talk about what's real, and let's talk about what's not, and let's see where we land. And this, this is our freedom. It doesn't have to be awkward. It really doesn't. It can be beautiful if we are students of our culture, students of the gospel, full of compassion for people and entering and trusting the results to God and not measuring them by conversions. Let's pray. God, thanks for the story that you have given to us through Luke's documentation and Paul's travels, that we get to stare into a culture so close to our own, a space that feels so familiar to us, a space of thinkers, a space of innovators, a space of the new. And watching Paul so beautifully bring the truth of the gospel into that space in a respectful and kind manner, and and in a manner that demonstrates a knowledge of truth. And God, what a What a blessing it is that Paul's beautiful unpacking of the gospel didn't result in a Billy Graham moment, but resulted in a standard Renault moment where you do your best and it doesn't seem like much happens. And God, I thank you so much that we can stand here now and recognize that our job is to go into our cultural context as students of those around us, compassionate for them as we watch the idols of our culture battle our hearts and erode theirs and to to bring to bear the redemptive reality of the gospel into that space and to say, man, I'm just here to show you the freedom that has emerged in my soul as I've discovered the great work of Jesus on our planet. Help us to become students enough of both our culture and the gospel that we don't walk into those spaces naively, but we walk into those spaces as those who have not only thought deeply on these things, but experienced deeply their realities. May we live what we believe. May we share what we believe because we are passionate about the redemptive results that come to bear as we do. Help us, God, to become active participants in worshiping you by sharing the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.